0: Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Dr. Bob Weathers. Very happy to be here with you. Uh, My colleague, Odie Martinez, uh, is taking a break this week, so it'll just be solo Bob this week. I do miss Odie. Uh, We wish him well, and we'll see him next uh, Wednesday in our regular time slot together. I am here in the studio with Austin Armstrong. He's the producer of our weekly Ask an Addiction Specialist uh, podcast, and I want to extend a gratitude to you, Austin, for managing to, uh, I think he has eight arms. He's managing a lot of different things at once, including uh, uh, putting our our podcast up in various forums or various platforms. Uh, we're streaming live right now on YouTube, for example, as well as Ask a Addiction Specialist, as well as, I just found out today, Twitch, right? Twitch. So, so uh, multiple ways to view us live, also multiple ways to view... Us after the fact we have archived videos located at the treat, uh, at the uh, site for BeginningsTreatmentCenters.com. beginnings, uh, beginnings is, is a sponsor of, the, of our weekly program want to extend the gratitude to them also direct you to their site if you look up podcasts you'll find ask an addiction specialist back over the last year and we've got uh, lots of different topics that we covered so i encourage you to take a look at that if you have interest You can also track our podcast from the past on youtube it's easy to find us under ask an addiction specialist look up my name and there you'll find lots of resources a little bit about myself just to kind of place our conversation in context particularly for those of you that might be viewing our podcast today for the first time and then we'll dive right in uh first of all i'm a professor of clinical psychology uh, at a local university california southern university I've worked with California Southern for about 10 years now and I love my most recent role, which is supervising doctoral dissertations, uh, many of which have to do with topics related to our podcast series. Uh, I chair a number of dissertations that are looking at addiction of various kinds, both to substance as well as behaviors um uh, such as eating addictions gambling addictions sex addictions and so on Uh, and looking at these in the context of healing treatment recovery so i really enjoy that work Um, i also uh, have a specific interest in looking at some of the factors that serve as barriers to successful sustained recovery two of which are uh, internalized shame and stigma, societal stigma. And as it turns out, a number of the dissertations that I'm working with uh, current students on have to do with those topics of shame and stigma as factors that must be addressed uh, for for recovery to really take. And so we've woven in many conversations here um, on the topic of shame and how to reduce that. I'm completing a book right now that should be out by the end of the year, Unshaming and uh, that's, that's uh, a, an ongoing theme in our, in our uh, weekly uh, podcast here, and it will be today as well. So um, that's, that's part of my background. Another part of my background uh, currently is that I, I'm a recovery coach, and that means that I, I, uh, I was just sharing with, with Austin. I run uh, eight different groups each week in different treatment settings. I've been working with Beginnings Treatment Centers now for almost three years, And uh, I'm coming fresh from the men's group that I lead every Wednesday afternoon at Beginnings. And I know that I'll be weaving in uh, uh, material from that that group meeting today. It was very satisfying. And I intend to bring in some of that material uh, a little bit later in our podcast today. So thank you again for joining us. I want to recommend and invite you to uh, share uh, this podcast with others. You're welcome to link others to it today. Let them know that you like what we're doing. Um, let us know that you like what you're doing by writing comments uh, on, our, our, on our Facebook group, Ask Addiction Specialist, um, as well as the YouTube. Uh, if you go to the YouTube, you can, you can write comments there. Also, I want to invite you to submit questions in real time today. This is one of the highlights of each week. And Austin will um, moderate those questions and send them my way. And as we're presenting today, I'll have a few exercises. We're going to start with an exercise in just moments. And I would love to have your interaction, so I really want to invite your engagement that way. And know that I will respond to you uh, today. And 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 if something comes to you later, you're welcome to write to us through the Facebook group. And I'll give you my email address a little bit later too, where you can write me questions. And I love responding to questions uh, after the podcast as well. So this is. Meant as a, a source of information, kind of a clearinghouse for the latest information on addiction recovery, and I, I mentioned my background because most of most of my focus here uh, has to do with psychological aspects of recovery. I, I don't uh, believe that that that's all that we'll discuss. I'm very interested in biomedical. Perspectives on addiction, as well as social and cultural perspectives, but I come come to you with my background in clinical psychology, and you'll see much of the focus will bring that 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 forward. Um, I mention that because there's a lot of work done in recovery that looks at recovery from the perspective of spirituality, looking at spiritual uh, spirituality as a resource for recovery, looking at addiction as a spiritual problem, uh, and to quote the 12-step programs, a spiritual problem that demands a spiritual solution and as we've discussed before in fact as i'll be discussing next week talking some more about holistic treatment i absolutely support that perspective a spiritual perspective on addiction and recovery and i also feel like that it that it's buttressed or supported more fully if we engage with other disciplines as well and so my discipline in psychology the discipline of those that operate from a medical perspective those that operate from a legal perspective um, and so on. I feel like that as many different perspectives as we can bring to bear, uh, the better off we'll be in in the healing that is wanting to happen. So, um, just as a as a as a, a brief review, last week we looked at early origins of addiction, and by early origins I mean early origins in our psychological development of addiction. And we'll be picking up with that topic today as we look at how it is that the experience of shame, which is so uh, central to not only addiction, but also relapse prevention. How it is that shame, the the emotion of shame, registers so powerfully in our bodies. And so I'll be talking about that later today uh, in some detail including defining shame. again for any of you that are new uh, to, to us today, I want you to get, kind of have a uh, get, get, get you up to get you up to snuff here with with our, our definitions that we've used over time around shame. And I'll also be tying in why it's so uh, uh, crucial to our discussion of addiction and recovery. <clears throat> but I felt like the, that if we're going to be talking about the embodied emotion of shame today that it might be good to, spend just a few minutes uh, getting in touch with what's going on in our bodies right now. And what I want to share with you all and invite you to join me is a five-minute meditation that I begin most groups that I lead uh, each week. And, I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you the rationale for that. I, I lead a five-minute mindfulness meditation that's really focused on mindfulness of the breath and mindfulness of the senses. And it's meant to help ground clients that I work with uh, in their bodies. And particularly as we look at the, 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 uh, the role of stress as being a central trigger for relapse, whatever we can do to de-stress, to, re- to reduce our stress level, is a step in the right direction in terms of sustaining sobriety, sustaining recovery. And so I feel like it doesn't hurt to meditate uh, practice mindfulness as often as I lead a group. And so virtually every group I lead now, I start with, with this meditation. And the goal is this, the goal is to introduce clients that I work with, introduce you today to a very simple mindfulness exercise that can be expanded beyond five minutes uh, over time. But for many people, five minutes is as is, is much as they can manage and that's fine, it's a good place to start. Uh, it also gives us a way to begin to tune into our bodies and uh, I'd like to start to ask you to join me by tuning into your body right now. If you could describe or define uh, 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 your stress level right now in this moment on a scale of one to 10, one being completely relaxed, 10 being paralyzed with stress, the opposite extreme, one to 10, where would you define yourself right now? Where would you mark yourself right now? How would you quantify your stress level? Take a moment just to check in. Okay. I want to invite you to join me in a mindfulness exercise, and then I'll check in with you when we complete the exercise to see if that stress level has changed. Sometimes, well, for most people, it actually lowers. Uh, It doesn't always do that. It may not for you, but let's give it a shot, okay? So join me in a five-minute meditation. I'm gonna invite you uh, wherever you are, unless you're driving, (laughs) to close your eyes, okay? And uh, if you're uncomfortable with that, maybe just lower your eyes to uh, reduce distractions. And I'll close my eyes um, uh, and and lead us in a very simple meditation. It takes about five minutes. And consider it a, a mini vacation. Okay, so here we go. Start by taking in a deep breath. And release that when you're ready. Another breath, deep breath, breath inside. Feel it all the way down into your abdomen and release. Do that again. Deep breath in, feel it all the way down. Your abdomen will rise with the in-breath. And on the out-breath, notice that your uh, abdomen uh, recedes, that it falls. Now a couple more breath cycles of just noticing the rising and falling of your stomach. Breathing in, rising, breathing out, falling. Rising, falling. Now, if you're like me, thoughts will tend to come in and uh, distract us from our focus on just the sensation of breathing. And I want to give you a little clue, something that can be helpful, and that is, as a thought comes into your awareness, rather than following it, as in daydreaming, see if you can, for now, just make a mental note of that thought. Uh, I find it helpful just to label it, thinking, thinking, and then set it aside gently and bring your attention back to the breath. So the goal here is to focus on the breath, the sensation of the breath, all the way down in your abdomen, rising and falling. When a thought comes in, simply label it thinking, thinking, and then back to the breath, rising and falling. Let's try that for a couple of breath cycles. sticking with the breathing, this next breath cycle as you breathe out, breathe in deeply as you breathe out, allow your body just to relax. If you're sitting like I am, just allow your body to settle into the chair, feel the gravity pull you down, just feel feel the heaviness, be, be limp, just let that go. If you're lying down, the same thing, so breathing in and then breathe out and let yourself go into gravity. Okay. On the next two breath cycles, gradually work up from your feet to the top of your head, scanning your body for any differences in temperature. You'll notice your extremities may be cooler, any exposed skin may be cooler, whereas other parts of your body may feel warm. Just slowly scan from foot to head and take a couple of breath cycles to do this. So just take your time. Taking another deep breath, just noticing the rising and falling of your belly. On the next couple of breath cycles, I'd like to invite you to see if you can detect your heartbeat inside your chest for now without putting your hand on your chest. It's quite subtle and you may not be able to, but if you're quiet and focused, you just might be able to feel your heartbeat uh, again inside, inside your body. So let's give that a couple of breath cycles to try that, okay? Now I invite you to put your hand on your chest so that you can feel your heartbeat directly in your hand. Let's do that for one breath cycle. Okay. Now drop your attention slightly to your stomach and notice how you're feeling in your digestive tract right now. Do you feel full? Do you feel hungry? Is your tummy upset? Just notice what you feel down in your stomach. We're almost finished, just two more now. On the next couple of breath cycles, start from the top of your head and work your way down to your feet. This time scanning for any muscle tension any aches and pains that you feel in your body. And if you scan and don't feel uh, any aches and pains, just make note of that. So take your time, a couple of breath cycles just for this. Head to toe. Then finally, for now, um, notice what you hear. I'm in a very quiet studio environment with Austin and I can hear his typing on the keys occasionally, but it's pretty doggone quiet in here. Uh, You may be in a noisier environment and whether you're in a quiet environment or a noisy environment, there'll be sounds that you hear, maybe distant, maybe close. And something you might try is in between the sounds see if you can detect the silence between sounds. So even if there's noise in the environment, voices or outside car sounds, whatever, air conditioning, see if you can also appreciate and notice any silence. And let's do that for one breath cycle and then we'll be done. hear The silence between the pitter patter of the keys, Austin. <laughs> and we're done. You're opening your eyes now. Um, we're done with the exercise for now. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> it's unusual for two people to be uh, in uh, in, a, in a space together and to be as quiet as it is, even though there's a little bit of uh, typing going on. Yeah. Uh, I want to continue in just a second with the meditation, but I noticed that somebody's written a comment here. Ray asks, why do they say drug addiction is a disease? Uh, you know, what I'd like to do, Ray, is I will answer that question. Let's do this. Let's, let's uh, just spend a couple minutes kind of debriefing after the meditation exercise that we just did. And then let me uh, respond to your question. It's a great question. It's a very important question. So thank you. I will come to that in just a moment. Appreciate it, Ray. What I'd like you to do if you joined in the meditation is make a note right now of where is your stress level right now on a scale of 1 to 10. See if you can locate that. Okay. I started off around a 6 or a 7. And right now I'm about a two or three. (laughs) So that's how it went for me. I wonder how it went for you. I'd be interested and I invite any of you to share your experience, if you'd like to, from the meditation. Let me make a couple comments about the meditation and about this this, uh, movement from being more stressed to less stressed, a couple comments about that. And then I want to address Ray's question before we dive into talking about shame uh, in our bodies. Um, I'll oftentimes ask clients what value might there be in what we just did this practice that we just did and by the time I've met in groups with with clients for a while we will have discussed such things as uh, relapse prevention and the number one trigger for relapse in addiction is stress and people will experience stress from all kinds of different angles recently uh, in a group Someone talked about relationships being stressful. Another person talked about finances being stressful. Another person said their work is stressful. Another person said boredom is stressful. And all of these represent potential triggers for relapse. And so anything that I can do or that you can do to help reduce stress is again in the the right direction. And so we'll be talking about shame today in our bodies shame ends up being an incredibly stressful emotion, enough so that there was a study at Harvard University that summarized the findings of 200 different studies. This kind of study that looks at a bunch of different studies is sometimes referred to as a meta-analysis, it's analyzing all the different studies, and it was discovered that the single highest trigger for the stress hormone cortisol is shame. And so whether it's stress more largely or stress more specifically in terms of shame, if I can find some way to to do what psychology calls self-regulate, to be able to manage my stress, to lower my stress, that's a good thing. Now, what we just did was a mindful awareness exercise, just basically mindfulness of our breath and of our bodies, of our senses. And we did that for a reason today because we're going to be looking at 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 feelings that manifest more in our bodies than in our minds. Uh, And so if I can find some way to reduce stress in my body, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But there are other ways to do that besides mindfulness. And when I ask a group of men and women who are early in recovery what they do to reduce stress, many of them will say well historically they've used their addictive substance as a way to reduce stress and that's true and so you can see where the mandate is here i've got to find something to replace what i've done before to at least temporarily reduce stress if uh, using substance alcohol and other drugs was my way to do that but also many people will talk about other resources that they use besides meditation there will always be a few people in the group that have been using yoga and other forms of meditation, mindfulness, and so on. Uh, but for other people, it, it can be uh, athletics, sports, working out. For for many, it's music, art, poetry. Uh, uh, for some, it's it's just uh, uh, going on a hike. Uh, Going to, the, going to the beach. We live near the ocean and watching the sunset. There are multiple ways to reduce stress. It's just imperative that those of us in recovery from addiction find a way to make those a part of our lives, which brings me to another point about this exercise. You may have experienced a reduction in your stress, and that's great. I'm glad for that if you did. I did. Uh, but don't be discouraged if you didn't. Uh, only because, like most any other uh, skill that we develop, it requires practice, and practicing what we just did right now for for five minutes or, or, or so a day, to do that for a week, you'll be that much better at the end of the week, and there's research to suggest if you do that for six weeks, nearly daily, that you will have built a new habit that's really uh, really making a sizable difference in your stress level. So, Uh, I encourage you to uh, experiment if you're interested in this exercise. You know, it occurs to me, it actually came to me as one of my thoughts as I was meditating, is if you go on YouTube and look up my name, Dr. Bob Weathers, I've got a series of four different meditations that are just basically what we just did. Um, And they're five minutes long, 10 minutes long, 15 minutes long, and one's 20 minutes long, And you're welcome to view those those are easy to access okay so that's that's a thought as a resource there are lots of other resources on mindfulness uh, on youtube and and you're welcome to check them all out but i encourage you to experiment to see how this goes Uh, many clients that i see will say you know i'm not a good candidate for meditation my brain is too active And I say, I'm at the head of that list. I have a very active brain. And with practice, it actually can get to where I can calm my brain thanks to practices like this. I also engage very much in athletics and music as ways to help relax, chill, unplug. Uh, And I recommend you do that too. So I've got one question that I've got on the tip of my tongue, raised question, which I'll come back to. And it looks like somebody else has written in the comments. So let me take a look at this real quickly and then we'll proceed forward. Well, this is from Angela. Hi, Angela. Thank you for joining us. Angela says, I just got up from a siesta. That's good. I'm glad you had a nap. That's good. So my stress was low. Yeah, after a nap. It really, you know, taking a nap is another way to reduce stress. She says, but doing the mindfulness with you brought me more present and focused in a calm way. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, You are already relaxed and it has a way of grounding us and kind of centering things. Uh, and I know from conversations that we've had that, that you already are very embodied and grounded in your body. And something like this, if it's useful to you and it sounds like it was after a nap, that's great. It's great to take that relaxation and be able to focus it. It's a funny thing with mindfulness because, it, it, on the one hand, it's very, um, uh, it's very uh, kind of open and flexible, on the other hand, it's very focused. Uh, I don't know how this went for you all, including you, Angela, in terms of being able to focus on feeling your heartbeat. That takes quite a bit of concentration, um, but it's a very, it is a, and it's a very subtle practice for sure, but it's an opening into the senses that we might otherwise miss, and it's always there, just as our breath is, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of coming together of apparent opposites where you're focused and relaxed at the same time. I'm glad it was useful to you. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that, Angela. So let me address for a moment Ray's question. Uh, Ray's question is about why is it that addiction is talked about as a disease? I hope that's close to what you're asking about. The way I understand it, Ray, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when I introduced the idea of holistic treatment and we'll actually be coming back to it next week. I'm going to be looking next week, I'll announce this later, but looking at, uh, uh, at holistic treatment that is from multiple perspectives uh, with a map with a map. In other words, it's not just just any old idea randomly thought out. It's like actually navigating with a map and we'll be going into more detail with that. But let me give you a little foretaste of where we might go next week and also recommend that you go back and look at our presentation two weeks ago, which was on introducing the idea of holism uh, in, in our understanding of addiction. The way we talked about it, Ray, is that there's multiple perspectives on addiction. One of those is a biological, medical perspective on addiction, and uh, uh, a physician uh, or a, uh, or a scientist is going to look at addiction as as a disease, as a biological disease. And in fact, there's a lot of research, and I'm very interested in this research that looks at the impact of active addiction on the brain, for example, and uh, it would just be as if any other organ in the body, whether it's the liver or the heart, was, was, uh, uh, was being compromised as the brain is compromised in active addiction. So from a biomedical perspective, <clears throat> it's very consistent with, with, it, with that perspective to talk about what happens in addiction as a disease. Um, It's also possible to talk about addiction not from the perspective of disease and when we're talking about a holistic uh, analysis of addiction, it makes sense to host all of these perspectives. And so for example, from a uh, social cultural perspective, you could analyze addiction as a uh, uh, social phenomenon, certain, certain, certain social groups, demographic groups. Um, are much more vulnerable to addiction than other groups or let's just look at something historical is that this is one of the topics of the group I led earlier today at beginnings is looking at the uh, the current opioid epidemic there's no precedent for this epidemic it's a function of some combination of new pharmaceuticals having been developed having been made widely available and they're highly addictive and people are dying in droves uh, it's incredible uh, the toll that it's taken in the last 10 years, and that's that's a historical phenomenon. And so you can look at it. You can look at addiction historically or as a social cultural phenomenon. And if you're coming at it from the perspective of sociology, for example, or from the perspective of law, you wouldn't use the language of disease necessarily. You might use the language of, of violation of laws, or you might use the the language of a uh, social cultural or even political phenomenon. Um, And so they would use different language for addiction than talking about it as a disease. Uh, If you look at disease, if you look at uh, addiction from a psychological perspective, there's many perspectives, including looking at uh, addiction as a function of psychological trauma and what people do to deal with trauma by, for example, numbing out. And uh, you might choose to, or you might choose not to talk about it as a disease depending on your perspective. Let's say that you're a minister and you're looking at disease, you might look at, dis- uh, at, at addiction. You might look at addiction, let's say from a Christian perspective, you might look at, as, as a, uh, at addiction as a, as a form of sin, as a form of being kind of off the mark in terms of one's relationship to the divine. And you wouldn't use the language of, of disease to de- describe that. Um, and uh, uh, there are plenty of people, especially loved ones, of, of those that are in active addiction, they probably wouldn't think of addiction as a disease with their loved one so much as, as that, their, that their loved one is uh, bad or wrong or, uh, you know, other terms, because it's so painful. It's so painful to the, the, the loved one to experience this. And they might not, they might not think of addiction in the categories of disease at all. So I I, I do feel very strongly that addiction is a disease, depending on one's perspective. And a biomedical perspective, I think for sure, we'll talk about it. For any of you that have been involved in the 12-step programs, which I have been as well, uh, addiction is talked about as a disease. It took a long time for addiction to be seen as a disease. It was seen as a moral aberration um, uh, and needed to be be punished or needed to be exorcised. And uh, it's, it's an evolution in the last 40 to 50 years to be able to talk about addiction. I'm talking about the medical establishment talking about addiction in, in the terminology of disease. Let me recommend um, uh, three resources that I think could be really helpful, Ray, that you could check these out to find out more information. I just had asked, somebody asked me yesterday, Bob, could you give me some recommendations for resources as I, uh, begin to study addiction. And these are my three favorites, and they all they all go into detail, Ray, in terms of addressing the question you've raised. The first I'd recommend is a book by uh, the uh, Canadian physician Gabor Mate, G-A-B-O-R, M-A-T-E with an accent over it, Gabor Mate. His book uh, In the Realm of the Hungry Ghosts, uh, uh, is an examination of addiction from multiple perspectives, including societal perspectives. He does a wonderful job of looking at the social and economic uh, variables involved in addiction, but also looks, as a physician himself, looks at addiction very much from the perspective of, of a physical illness or a disease. Highly recommend that. Uh, that book, uh, it's widely available. Uh, you can also watch video uh, videos online of Gabor Mate describing uh, his perspective on addiction. Uh, Another real resource for me uh, 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 that's been uh, really pivotal in my own training is the work of Dr. Kevin McCauley, M-C, little c, uh, big C, M-little c, big C-A-U-L-E-Y, Kevin McCauley. And he has two uh, videos, Pleasure Unwoven and Memo to Self. Both of those are available on DVDs. And I think he does extraordinary work in, in talking about the, the, the disease uh, metaphor, the disease language of addiction. He actually refers to addiction as a disease of choice and specifically talks about the parts of our brain, specifically the frontal cortex, that are involved in making decisions, such as saying no, are rendered moot. They're, are, they're uh, trumped by, by the midbrain in active addiction. And so to actually choose not to use uh, even more powerfully, as, as Kevin puts it, to choose not to crave in, in and around active addiction is next to impossible. And he explains the brain circuitry that goes into to supporting that thesis. All you need to know is know addiction yourself firsthand or speak to somebody who does and they can discuss how difficult it is to resist and it's next to impossible not to crave in the context of addiction. And, and Dr. McCullough does a wonderful job of that. A third resource for you and then we'll move on. A third resource I've, I found really valuable and this is available in videos. Um, it's actually an audio book as well. Is Dr. Thad Polk from University of Michigan, T-H-A-D-P-O-L-K has a series called The Addictive Brain that is as current as science is right now. He's a scientist. And as also all three of these resources, Gabor Mate, Kevin McCauley, and Thad Polk, are all easily understandable to a layperson. So if you're interested to, to investigate addiction uh, more deeply, Thad Polk's material is really uh, uh, profound and very current. I mean, it's up to date with the latest research. For example, brain scan research being done around addictions. So, I recommend all three of them if you want to go deeper with this question. It's an important question. I'll tell you why. <clears throat> it relates to our topic of shame. I just sat yesterday with a group at a at a treatment center center, and we talked about addiction in the brain. And these were individuals that are very early in recovery. There was no one there that was that had been off of drugs any more than three weeks. So they're all early in recovery. Uh, They're all going through detox right now. So I wasn't sure how this would land in terms of our talking about what happens in the brain around addiction. And what I was struck by is that there was a lot of receptivity and a lot of cylinders firing in this group. So even very early in recovery, there was a lot of comprehension going on. At the very end of our uh, hour together, I asked, what value is there in understanding what happens in the brain around addiction? I was just curious to see. And they put their finger right on it, Ray. And I think this relates to your question: Is our talking about what happens in the brain helps to give us a little bit more objectivity about uh, about addiction? It begins to uh, give us a sense of what we're up against. It also takes us off of the hot spot, uh, the hot seat in terms of being somehow bad people because we're addicted. Uh, uh, And as we talk about shame here, and I will in just a moment define it, uh, this gets right at the heart of where people can stall in their recovery. If they get identified with the disease, so much so that they're nothing but being an addict, that's all they are, Uh, that will stall people because because of the impact of shame. And so if I can have a medical perspective or a biological understanding of addiction, it actually helps to ward off the worst of of, uh, self-indictments as well as other indictments from others for somehow being a bad person uh, without hope because there is hope there is hope for recovery from addiction and it helps uh, tremendously to find a position in regards to addiction that makes this distinction about me needing to change my life at the same time that i am not a bad person or a hopeless person or a defective person uh, from top to bottom because that's not true Let's talk about shame and I'll just summarize real quickly. Last week we looked at shame in terms of its early origins. We actually said that shame comes on board developmental psychologists who work with infants can locate in an infant's physical responses evidence of shame in the first year. So it's it's pre-verbal. It comes on before we have words. That's going to be important when we talk in a few moments about shame in the body because shame comes on board before we have words. It's an embodied sense of things that uh, is prior to or it's pre-verbal. It's pre-verbal. Now let's recall for just a moment our definition of shame. We've talked about shame as being two sides of a coin. First of all, it represents a threat to social acceptance. That is, you're gonna reject me, I'm gonna reject you. And that's tied directly into the second side of the coin, which is a threat to self-esteem. If you think about it for just a second, We need each other for survival, particularly early in our life. But there's no time in our life where we don't need connections with other people for support, as well as early on, especially for safety. And so if there's a threat to that, you better believe that the body's going to go on red alert. And tied directly to that is if I can't get you to accept me, if I'm failing at that, then I'm really failing at a central point. commandment for me to survive and if our self-esteem is based as psychologists would say on our self-efficacy that is being competent and if i'm not competent at having you accept care for love protect me then i'm failing i'm incompetent and that's going to go directly into lowered self-esteem now the irony of this is as my self-esteem lowers i makes me more vulnerable to being uh, rejected So it's a bit of a vicious cycle that we can get ourselves into. But if we understand shame then as threats to social acceptance, threats to self-esteem, that gets us in the field. It also helps to distinguish the way that we're talking about shame here in this series, to distinguish shame from guilt. And so one of the distinctions I make is talking about shame as being toxic and it's right up next to guilt, which I believe is rightful guilt. Toxic shame, rightful guilt. And what do I mean by that? Rightful guilt is that I did something bad. In the context of addiction, I did something bad. I made some really poor choices. And there's no, there's no getting off the hot seat with that. That's the truth. Uh, but when that slips into shame, it moves from I did something bad to I am something bad. And that definition uh, uh, will resonate for most of us. Uh, is that if if i feel guilty about something i can actually change my behavior if i am bad if i am defective it's much harder to change something that's defective in terms of who i am and and in fact we're talking just a moment we're going to do an exercise in just in just a second we'll talk in just a moment of what happens in the brain around shame to understand how it is that shame really is toxic um But as I said earlier, shame is not primarily about words. And so our definitions, shame is a threat to social acceptance, a threat to self-esteem, or that shame differs from guilt because guilt means I've done something bad. Shame means, says to me, that I am something bad. Those are still words. So what I want to ask us to do in in our exercise right now is I want you to think of an instance in which you've experienced shame, embarrassment, Humiliation, and think for a moment of where you locate that. Where does shame locate in your body? You're welcome to write this down if you care to. Where does shame locate in your body? Okay. Now, when I ask this of group members uh, regularly, I'll get a whole range of responses. Let's see if, if any of these match for you. Almost always, I'll get somebody say, it locates in my stomach. Somebody just said yesterday, I feel an emptiness, a hollowness in my gut. Yes. Another person said, I feel it in my head. My my thoughts begin to race. Yes. Another person said, I feel these pinpricks in my face and I start sweating. Uh, I blush. Yes. Another person said, I feel it in my chest. It's like a crushing, like I can't breathe. Yes. So shame affects our bodies massively, maybe very, maybe quite individually. Let's see if you recognize yourself amongst those. And then now let's do this. We've talked about how shame manifests in our, that feeling manifests in our bodies before words. By the way, it's directly into those feeling states. And let's just talk for a moment about what happens with shame in the brain. Shame hijacks the frontal cortex. The frontal cortex is the front part of my brain. And what does that do? The frontal cortex represents the executive center of the brain, and it's involved in long-term planning, it's involved in uh, impulse control, it's involved in empathy and compassion for others, it's involved in logic and thinking things through, looking at the consequences of our actions before we dive in. Some people have talked about it this way, that the frontal cortex represents the breaks in the brain, so that before we move on, an, uh, on a, a reflex or an, uh, an impulse, uh, we can evaluate the situation, decide whether it's a good decision, and if we decide it's not a good decision, all of that's frontal cortex material, uh, is that we'll put on the brakes and we won't we won't then act. Now what happens in shame is that shame doesn't emanate from the frontal cortex, it actually emanates from the midbrain, right between our ears. This is referred to as the limbic system or the emotional center of the brain and shame is right there in the middle of our brain and it's 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 a primitive instinctive response to protect us. Let me talk about that for just a second. You've all heard of a fight or flight reaction. That is that is a a midbrain phenomenon. It uh it 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 moves quickly, much more quickly than the frontal cortex can. So if you're being attacked by a vicious animal, you don't want to have to deliberate about that. You need to move immediately and the limbic system will kick in and get you to move. So that would be the the flight reaction. If it's not such a big animal, you might want to fight it. (laughs) Okay, so that'd be the fight reaction. So either move towards with aggression or move away from in fear. But there's a third response, and this relates directly to shame, and it's also tied to this very deep, instinctive, reflexive part of our brains, in the middle of our brains. And that would be a freeze response. So you have fight, flight, or freeze. Now the way that shame works is it's a freeze response. It actually shuts us down. So you remember how I asked you, what do you feel in your bodies when you, when you feel shame? And you feel different feelings. But oftentimes, if you grew up where I grew up, we talked about sometimes you feel so bad you want to crawl into a hole. That would be a shame response. You want to disappear in fact i asked yesterday what do your eyes typically do in shame somebody said it you look down you don't want to make eye contact you want to hide another person who must come from the same neck of the woods as i do said you want to play possum so we talked about that what is a possum well a possum one individual said it's a marsupial i thought that was a great response it's a marsupial i think that's probably accurate it's in the same family as what the kangaroos um uh, A possum, when it's, uh, for example, being attacked by a larger animal, let's say a bear, it will play dead, it will curl up and play dead, and that would be a freeze response, it freezes, and it will oftentimes survive, has a better chance of surviving if it freezes than if it runs or than if it fights. And what's the logic there? Well, if a possum curls up and acts like it's dead, the bear might be less inclined to eat it because it doesn't know how long it's been dead. And if it's been dead a long time, I know this is gross, if it's been dead a long time, it probably will be infected and, and the bear might uh, eat it and die. And so the, the bear will tend to turn away from it. So freeze would have us curl up like a possum in a corner and maybe no one will notice us. We don't want to be seen, we don't want to be found out want to ask you to do one further exercise right now. <clears throat> I want you to remember a time when you felt particularly slimed. I was explaining this term yesterday to a friend of mine who is European, who speaks English but is not familiar with this particularly yeah colloquial phrase of being slimed. I'd re- I'm would i using it specifically in the sense of when you've been humiliated or embarrassed or shamed in the presence of somebody, I want you to give yourself a th- sec- second to think about when you felt really bad, slimed by someone. Think of that for just a second. See if you can relate to where you feel that in your body, just in the memory of it being slimed. Where do do you feel it in your body? Okay, I want you to hold that thought because we're gonna be coming back to that as we weave in some more material here. I wanna ask you a question, and it is a trick question. Okay, where are our brains located? When I ask this to a group of people, typically someone will, well, most people will say, well, they're located in our skull, in our head, and that's true. <clears throat> in the last 20 years of brain scan research, we've discovered that the nervous system radiates through the body much more radically than we ever imagined, enough so that nowadays, neuroscientists talk about the heart brain and the gut brain. The heart brain, as it turns out, is particularly related to relationships and a sense of connection or attachment. The gut brain is related uh, oftentimes to a feeling of safety. And so if you think about times that you felt unsafe and your stomach becomes unstable, that's the gut brain activating. The truth is, is that we have brains throughout our body. It gets even more radical though is that nowadays with brain scan research, we can actually look at how our brains are shared. So neuroscientists will talk about not only the, this brain, the brain in our skulls, heart brain, Gut brain. We'll talk about shared brain. Now, shared brain gets us into this phenomenon of being slimed. I want to talk about it just a little bit more to give you a handle on it and give you a direction where we're going to go with this in terms of our, our, our next weeks of our series together, <clears throat> uh, looking at the interpersonal dimensions of addiction. There's a domain uh, uh, that's arisen in the last 20 to 30 years that's, uh, there's a lot of literature that's developed quickly. It's very much a function of technology, the ability to do uh, successful brain scans of people. Uh, We've been so limited technologically uh, to examine the human brain, especially in real time until the last uh, 10 to 20 years. And so this domain that's developed is referred to as interpersonal neurobiology which is a mouthful, but hang with me, interpersonal, between us, neurobiology, the way that my nervous system works, and what they're looking at is the impact of relationships on our brains. And we're talking about our brains in terms of our our embodied brains. Head, heart, gut. One of the terms that's used in psychology to describe this phenomenon of the fact that we share brains is uh, co-regulation is that we co-regulate one another. And it's easy to give examples of this. One example of it is this. Have you ever heard of emotional contagion? Whether you've heard of it or not, you know it. And it's the idea that when somebody walks in a room and is upset, it's almost impossible not to pick up on it if you're paying attention. And in fact, sometimes it's almost impossible to keep it out from getting inside of you, so to speak. You begin to feel it inside of you. Let me pause for just a second. Somebody just uh, chimed in with our talking about the gut brain and the heart brain. Let me read this real quickly. Yeah, we have neuropeptides in and around our hearts and guts. We have gray matter down the spinal column. Thank you. So we have gray brain brain matter, neuropeptides, neurotransmitters radiating throughout our bodies, including our guts and hearts. I appreciate you talking about that. Thank you. It's why when we talk about an emotion like shame that it's a whole body response. It's not just a, it's not a verbalizable response necessarily, but I can tell you when I'm ashamed when my gut tells me or when my heart tells me or when my face tells me. So emotional contagion can be when somebody walks in and they're angry or fearful. Also, it also works with positive emotions. If somebody's extremely calm, think of what it's like to be in the presence of somebody who's at peace. It rubs off on you, right? Let me ask you this. Have you ever had the experience of being scapegoated? Where somebody points the blame at you and you end up feeling slimed that way? This may even relate to an example that you thought of. I think it does relate to an example I thought of. Now there's a technical phenomenon in psychology and I'm going to share the phrase with you and unpack it. The term is splitting and projective identification. And I know that is really a mouthful, but it makes sense if we break it down. Let's say that I'm the one who wants to scapegoat you. That is to say, I have something inside of my experience that I'm not comfortable with. It's what uh, psychology calls the the shadow. And it's parts of myself that are invisible to me, and I sure as heck don't want to know that they're, they're part of me. And so if I can find somebody to project that onto, push that off onto, I can split that part off out of my awareness, I can project it onto you, and you get to be the one that identifies with the projection. Hence, splitting, projection, identification. That's splitting and projective identification. That's a more technical way of understanding the phenomenon of scapegoating. Now I mentioned this phenomenon in the context of asking you, have you ever felt slimed? Now I want you to go back to that example and think about it for a moment. Did the person in whose presence you felt slimed? Did this phenomenon of scapegoating possibly pertain? Just ask yourself for a second. I'd never thought of it before with this, the particular example that came up, but I suspect that it did. <laughs> That's funny. Insights abound (laughs) what's not funny is to be slimed and also what's not funny is to be on the receding end of somebody's projections realizing that for example and this happens a lot with addiction um, there was a study that was done uh, in the last few years at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health where they looked at all of the different uh, diseases um um referred to as mental disorders, in the Diagnostic Manual for Psychiatry, the DSM. And everything from anxieties and depressions to thought disorders like schizophrenia, uh, across the board. And, And then examined each one of these diagnoses for what is the social stigma around those diseases. And at the very bottom of the barrel, not surprisingly, if you've been in this position, were the substance use disorders, the addictive disorders, that they have have the most negative attribution of any of the disorders. And, And so if you've experienced addiction yourself firsthand, which I have as well, and I'm in recovery, and if you're in recovery, you'll know what it's like to experience being stigmatized or being scapegoated by people that don't understand it. And here's the irony, one of the ironies of this is that Whereas 25% of the American population of adults is currently addicted to substance. If you include alcohol, nicotine, and other psychoactive substances. And as I discussed last week, this does not include caffeine. I just said, I discussed this last week, I realized it was on another presentation. I gave a webinar last week to the state of Idaho, and somebody asked me, did that include caffeine? That does not include caffeine. Caffeine is a psychoactive substance, as Austin sips on his Starbucks. <laughs> not a thing missed. We're cozy in our studio. <laughs> you can get back at me, okay? <laughs> and that's fine, but we're talking about substances that recreate really uh, you know, uh, severe problems, not to say that uh, A huge amount of caffeine doesn't. But so alcohol, nicotine, and other substances, 25% of us are addicted. Uh, But here's where the irony enters, is that if you look at recent studies that look at behavioral addictions, which now we're expanding it to look at non-substance-related addictions, non-psychoactive substances to be more technical, looking at behaviors like gambling, uh, uh, sexual addictions, uh, food-related addictions, uh, consumption in terms of shopping, spending, overspending, and so on, include those addictions that 90% of individuals say they have at least one addiction going on right now. So, so if, if you've experienced being scapegoated for, for having been addicted to a substance, just be aware that the individual that's scapegoating you probably is scared if they're a loved one it's very understandable that they'd be mad at you, and their anger oftentimes will come out as uh, their fear will oftentimes come out as anger or blaming. But also that that individual probably suffers themselves from addiction. We've talked about addiction in terms of the etymology of the word. Addiction comes from the Latin word "addictus," which simply means to be a slave. And all of us are enslaved to certain behaviors, and some of us are uh, are also uh, addicted or enslaved to certain uh, to certain substances and so uh this phenomenon of splitting and projective identification or scapegoating happens a lot we've already looked at how there's the most stigma around addiction uh, and yet probably not many of us are in a position to really stand purely and say i don't have any addiction you're the one that's blameworthy now i want to be careful about this because i'm not wanting to make excuses for addictive behaviors that would be a mistake Uh, a mistaken interpretation of what I'm saying. Here's what I do want to say, is addiction recovery, most of the work that's done in addiction recovery focuses on self-reliance. What can I do to be responsible? And that's as it should be. I, I, uh, at the end of the day, I have to decide I want to change my life and what do I need to do to be accountable to myself and to others in terms of establishing sobriety in favor of a long-term successful uh, sustained recovery. We're talking about shame, though, is that shame is the most stressful human emotion and that stress is the number one trigger for relapse. And here's the tricky part. Shame is a social emotion. Remember how we defined it? Shame is a threat to social acceptance and how that affects my self-esteem, how that affects me feeling about myself. So as much as I want to be self-reliant, which is true, in many ways, One of my primary impediments to success there is a social emotion, a social experience related to feeling slimed, to feeling scapegoated, to feeling shamed. Shame affects us, as we've seen today, deeply in our bodies. We've talked about the freeze response where it will freeze us up. Shame will stall me or freeze me or paralyze me in my forward movement towards successful recovery. So in this sense, you can literally say shame kills. As important as it is for me in recovery to take accountability for myself and to take action accordingly in terms of my healing from uh, addiction, I also need to be aware of this fact, and I hope we've established it just by a few exercises today, that others, especially significant others, matter greatly. Others matter. And why is that? Is that if we receive support from others, that will free up our best creative uh, energies. And if we're shamed or attacked or undermined by others, that will risk stalling us, moving us into that freeze response. It's the last thing that we want to be. We do not want to be a possum to our own recovery and our own momentum. So the question is this, what's to be done? If others are important as, and they're vital to our, uh, if co-regulation is as important to my recovery as is self-regulation, what's to be done. The next slide. You must go into the dark in order to bring forth your light. You must go, read it again. You must go into the dark in order to bring forth your light. Remember how we talked about rightful guilt? We have to be willing to take responsibility for what we've done in the context of addiction, for choices that we've made, for behaviors that have been uh, a function of our addiction and in support of our addiction, we must take accountability for that. And one of the best uh, arguments that I know of for the various self-help support groups that are available for addiction and for recovery, whether it's the 12-step system of of support, uh, there are other options, SMART Recovery. I'm very involved in refuge recovery, which is a mindfulness based approach. There are uh, any number of, of support groups for every addiction imaginable. What they have in common is creating a safe space where you can talk about your addiction, identify it as a problem that you want to fight. But what we do is we externalize that problem outside of ourselves so that we can, so that we can work on it. This is back to Ray's question earlier. If I have a disease, then I can work on on putting together a plan for recovery. If, on the other hand, I am a disease, then what hope is there for me? And what you have in common with the 12-step groups and other self-help support groups is a way of talking about addiction as a disease, externalizing it, and then going about the healing of it. To give you an example of what happens in most support groups that I've been involved in is that there's an opportunity for taking inventory. What have I done today? What have I done this week? What have I done uh, in active addiction? What is it that I need to turn around? What amends do I need to make? How can I begin to make amends for all the wrongs that I've done? And that I, uh, I, that I work towards healing relationships owing to what I've done in the past. I learn how to atone for what I've done. And just as importantly, I begin to develop a relationship, a conscious relationship with my own uh, shadow, with my, and so I do shadow work on myself. I can do that in groups. I can do that with therapists and recovery coaches. But that I work on clearing that out too, so that I don't end up being blindsided by that, but I begin to be aware of it, realize my vulnerabilities in the context of 12-step work, realize my character defects. There's another comment here. question is, do you ever offer classes or support groups for families or friends of loved ones who are dealing with addiction? To work on the family members, part of the social the social shame issue. It's a really good question. Treatment centers are beginning to uh, uh, build in family programs. My wife is a therapist at a treatment center up in uh, Los Angeles area, and she's in charge of their family program. So I can recommend that resource because it's very ambitious, and she spends a lot of time working on this. That's a PCH clinic up in Venice, California, up in the Los Angeles area. I work with Beginnings Closely, which is just developing a family program, right now. It's essential. Let me recommend to you family resources that you might find in the 12-step format. For example, Al-Anon. Uh, is a huge resource for family members that are wanting to get clear about boundaries, for example, uh, in their relationships, but also want to get clear from enabling addiction and or shaming the addict who's seeking recovery. And so there's resources that are available. Those are freely, uh, freely available. Treatment centers more and more beginning to be aware that like we've been talking about today, that addiction is an interpersonal phenomenon as much as an individual phenomenon, and that to deal with one without the other is limiting, is limiting, so. uh, If the question is to me personally, most of my work is leading groups right now with individuals who are seeking recovery from addiction. I do recovery coaching where I see people in my office and I oftentimes will see loved ones of those that are in recovery in my office, sometimes later on. So once they've gone through a treatment center, I'll see the loved ones, husbands, wives, children. I'll see them with with, with the individual who's in recovery. And the goal there is to, we call it treatment generalization, is to get the treatment successes that happened in a protected Uh, full-on treatment environment to get those to generalize, to bridge over to real life. I've seen this again and again where somebody can have a successful treatment in a uh, 30 or 60-day program, go home to the Midwest of the United States, interact with their families and relapse in a week. And so if there aren't resources, it's implied in the question, there aren't resources applied, creatively and ambitiously uh, that the treatment will not generalize, it will not It will not take. And so this piece we're talking about is critical. And I want you to know it's not about dissing family members. Uh, any of us that are loved ones of those that have been addicted know what it's like to fear that you're going to lose your father, you're going to lose your brother, you're going to lose your husband, you're going to lose your wife. And so that fear is understandable. It's just that so oftentimes it will come out indirectly and there have to be better ways of working with it than shaming and blaming. The the addict or the, their, the person in early recovery. So there's a lot of work to be done. If you're interested in uh, reaching out to me, uh, let me give you my email address in just a second. I'd be happy to talk with you more about resources wherever you might be, and we can brainstorm together. I feel like it's really critical. You know, we're going to finish up right now, and I want to say this, is that there is hope, and the hope is this as far as I can see, is that we're finally able to be able to choose for healthy relationships. And so It's one thing to get slimed every once in a while in a relationship. It's another thing to be habitually slimed. And if a relationship is habitually sliming, that relationship needs to be healed. And if there's not an openness to relational healing, then there need to be, speaking of boundaries, there need to be boundaries set up. I led another group this week where we were talking about this, where uh, one group member had to set a boundary with a family member who was so toxic to be around, and there was great suffering in that, but the worst suffering was to allow the relationship to continue to be abusive the way that it was. And so uh, if there's hope in this, it's that in support of my recovery or your recovery is that we can begin to discern and discriminate between healthy relationships, those relationships that will facilitate forward movement versus those relationships that push us into a freeze response where we shut down and die and so I want to encourage you to think about healthy relationships uh, in your own life and uh, and also to use what we talked about today to begin to identify relationships in which or interactions in which you feel shamed. It could be in the workplace, it could be in a home uh, environment with a family member or with another loved one, um, just to be able to pay attention to it. It's very helpful because our bodies don't lie to us this way. Our bodies will indicate what's going on. And as I said before, it's underneath words. It's, it's in the midbrain. So it's very helpful for us to begin to pay attention to that. It's critical for those who are in recovery to pay attention to this because if we're involved in shaming interactions, the, the, the reflex will be to want to numb out from that shame because it's so painful. And it's just one step from that to the bottle or the syringe. And so it's really... A critical uh, uh, discernment to be made, that's for sure. I want to thank you for uh, being with, with me today and with Austin here in the, in the studio. Uh, I've already made mention of it. Next week, we're going to be looking at holistic treatment with a map, and we'll be talking more into the question of addiction as a disease, as well as other ways of describing it. If you have any final questions or if you want to reach out to me more about the question regarding family resources that might be available in your community, please write me at uh, drbobweathers.com. If you go to the website, there's a contact me portion that goes right to my email. Just write me anything that you want to ask me and I'll be happy to respond to you personally. I uh, really appreciate you being with me this week. Uh, if, if, there, if there's a takeaway from today, uh, in addition to understanding what happens to our bodies around shame, it would be the opening exercise. See what you can do tomorrow to take five minutes just for yourself to, uh, to calm yourself, to, uh, to de-stress. Thanks so much. You take care. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye for now.